So this episode of the In Development podcast, our special guest today is Chris Taylor of Gas Powered Games, well known for developing some fantastic titles, uh, the great mind behind Total Annihilation, a gem of my childhood, as it were, and some great games like uh, Dungeon Siege Supreme Commander, some quirky titles like Demigod, and is currently kickstarting his latest adventure, Wild Man. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Ah, that's great. So I guess we'll start a little bit on that historical note. I'm sure you spent a lot of time over the past years talking a bit about your history, but to catch everyone up to speed, you started off before Cave Dog Entertainment, or was that sort of the beginning? I actually started when I was 21 at a company called Distinctive Software up in Burnaby, British Columbia. I was there for about three years before Electronic Arts, who was working with Distinctive, decided Oh, well, I guess made an offer to buy, and uh, the, the owner of that studio sold the company to EA, so it became EA Canada. And mm-hmm. thus, it began a very, very successful run where they produced some of the biggest sports titles ever. FIFA Soccer, NBA Live, Need for Speed, SSX. The list was just huge, so it became this phenomenon, and it was like the biggest development studio under one roof or on a campus. So did you uh, actually get your start making sports games? I did. I, I did hardball too. I did a game called 40 Sports Boxing. And I did a game called Triple Play Baseball and Virtual Stadium Baseball. And that was kind of a, a funny thing because it was a baseball game on the 3DO for Japan only. And can you imagine feeling like your career had ground to a halt because you were working on something so specific as to an arcane platform, like a 3DO in a <laughs> single marketplace. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. So uh, what were you doing when you got started? Were you a programmer, a designer? Well, it gets goes back even further then. I mean, when I was 14, I got my first computer. Someone showed me computers. A friend of mine actually showed me. This stuff is so weird. Back in 1980... People didn't have computers. Mm -hmm. I mean, up where I lived, up in British Columbia, it was like there's some rare thing. A friend of mine had a friend whose sister's husband had a (laughs) Commodore pet. I had to kind of work my way up through the system. You'd think I was trying to get to the CEO of General Motors or something, you know, working my way through these people to get in front of this Commodore pet so I could see with my own eyes this incredible thing called a personal computer. So when I saw it, I immediately went completely nuts. And I begged and begged my father, who then surprised me one day and brought me home a 16K TRS-80 personal computer with a cassette drive. (laughs) And thus began my career. And I started learning how to program computers. I immediately discovered, after getting this computer, that nothing really great could happen if you were programming in BASIC. You had to program in the hand-optimized assembly code, the Z80, or up in Canada we called it the Z80. And I had to learn this from a book, which was so complicated, I don't think I've ever seen anything that made less sense, unless you picked up a book on calculus, you know, I mean, and look, it just knew nothing about mathematics. I mean, it was the most mind boggling book. I still have it. It's in my office and I keep it close because it reminds me of where I started. Uh, so you really I, did I started... get started in programming. Oh, oh yeah. I'm sorry. Was that the, 
<laughs> I have a tendency to just to, go off. No, well, I guess the question I really wanted to kind of get through is is a lot of people wonder, they hear people who, you know, like yourself, who, who often have their name associated with the game. Like you think of someone like Sid Meier or Warren Spector or Chris Taylor or Chris Roberts, and they think, oh, yeah, this person in this, they have their vision about a game and, and they make games. But first of all, it's not just them, you know, they, they have a whole team behind them. But I guess a lot of people wonder, you know, how do you go from being a nobody to being a big name? And well, it seems a lot of people start off as programming. Yes. If you look at the programmers, I mean, Steve Jobs was a programmer. Bill Gates was a programmer. Sid Meier, to come back to gaming, Sid Meier mm-hmm. was a programmer. Peter Molyneux was a programmer. Will Wright was a programmer. Chris Roberts was a programmer. Jordan Mechner was a programmer. Very, very few of the early my the heroes that I I, I followed these incredible guys uh, Ron Gilbert Damon Sly these guys were computer programmers because you first of all you you had a very small team and mm-hmm. if you weren't a programmer well then you needed to hang out with somebody who was a programmer well a lot of these early games done by you know I mean Bill Budge Danny Buttonberry I mean these people worked alone. And they did it all themselves. They did the programming. They did the art. A lot of them did the music. They composed literally <laughs> those, like, those, you know, the music, right? So if you're a programmer, you don't have to get anyone else to agree to your vision of what you want to make. You simply have a computer and you start making it. And if you look at today, there are things going out on Xbox Live Arcade. There are games that are on the iOS devices. There's a story someone told me just yesterday about a young guy who made a game on the iOS who's made $4 million. Not that money is the end all, but just to kind of give you a measure of the success that he's met. And he did it all himself on iOS. So the App Store and the iOS and that platform has returned us to literally the early 80s. Right. Because by the late 80s, we were already working with teams of three or four. By the late 80s. But it was in the early 80s that people could do a game all by themselves. And we saw that again in the last three years. And how incredible it is that history repeated itself when we least expected it to. That, to me, is incredible. No one could have predicted it. We'll have to get you on for a a repeat episode when we've got some more times and things are less stressful to talk about that very topic. Yeah, it's good. It's, I think it's a very exciting topic. It's great because a lot of our listeners are very interested in, like I know myself, it's easy to come up with ideas for games. And then, of course, famous saying, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. What matters is whether or not you can actually produce them. And that really does come down to programming. And so a lot of times if you can't program, you can't have ideas. Well, put it this way, right? I mean, could you be a writer if you didn't speak a language? Well, you couldn't be a successful author if you were a bad writer, but you could still be a successful co-author if you had a good idea and someone else could write them down for you. Like, if you could speak but you couldn't write, could you still be an author or a co-author? Well, writing is also a craft, a selection of words. Exactly. So I think you'd be a co-author, but you'd be the second name on the page behind the person who artfully crafts these the sentences. Mm-hmm. However, there's these people uh, who are composers of music, orchestral scores, and they're called whistlers. They whistle because they don't know how to annotate music. They don't know how to write the sheet music. They just whistle a theme. You know how big composers work, right? They take a core idea. They create a theme that sort of articulates the emotional foundation of, an, of a thing, you know, an idea. You know, when Darth Vader walks onto the Death Star, right? We have Darth Vader's theme. And 
if you were a whistler, you could whistle this, and then someone who knows how to write sheet music and knows how to make a score for a, an orchestra would then take it all the rest of the way. And right. the core vision of that art or that piece of art, you know, comes out of master composer, whoever it is. That is exceptional in my mind. Very few people can get away with not having the hands-on skill to produce the work. You know, a painter, it's mm-hmm, very, mm-hmm. imagine trying to tell someone what to paint or woodworker trying to tell someone how to chip away at the wood. I mean, you know, very few, very few things work. And I think computer programming in the early 80s was certainly a case where if you didn't have the programming skills, that particular game was not going to come into being. Today, of course, you can be a paper designer. You can work with a notepad and a word processor, and you could creatively drive an entire 200-person game project. Exactly, yeah. I guess the trick then is for all those aspiring people to somehow end up with a 200-person game studio to turn their paper ideas into games, which is certainly not the easiest uh, task to accomplish. No. No, no, no. That is that is very rare. And I actually think it's getting rarer mm-hmm. that you'll mm-hmm. see less and less of those 200-person teams because right now, at least in this economy, the risk of a 200-person project is so great. I mean, we're looking at a game that takes two, three years to make at a team size of that. We're looking at a 60 to $120 million game project. And only the most successful franchises in the world will have that money spent on them. And, of course, only the most talented leadership will be given the keys to that car. So uh, to work your way up into that position would be like saying, going to Hollywood and saying, I'm going to be the next James Cameron. And I'm going to do (laughs) an avatar. Yeah, yeah, really. You know what? (laughs) Good luck is right. So a lot of times, like what you're talking about, a lot of people are saying, oh, yeah, well, that's sort of the death of AAA and and these huge big budget games are never going to get made because it's becoming too risky, too expensive. And then there's sort of other people sort of saying, oh, yeah, well, look at the indie studios and they're coming up with their, I don't know, double A or, or single A. I mean, I don't even know what they're supposed to be termed as. I mean, no one really knows what single A or double A means in comparison to triple A, let alone what that means. But it does seem like there's more and more players looking for games that are good games, fun games, but not necessarily ridiculously overblown budget games. Like the other day I was talking with some friends about uh, Sins of a Solar Empire. So what would you classify that as in terms of number of letters? Um, Let's call that a triple A game. See, in, in, that's the same thing. I wanted to call it a AAA, and they're like, no, that's not a AAA game. That wasn't a $100 million budget game. And Well, I want to say that it's in the new economy that we're in right now, it's absolutely a AAA. If you went back five, six years where games were routinely coming out between 5 and $20 million, I would say that it was probably a step down, but not because of gameplay value or gameplay mechanics or brilliance of design. It was only because of production value. To judge a piece of art based on production value alone is a tragedy. That's ridiculous. It'd be like judging a painting, a masterful painting, because of what the painter spent on the canvas and on the paint. Great art is great art, but we live in a world that likes to trivialize and simplify so we have to wrestle these concepts of double-A, triple-A. But that should only be for the purposes of sorting something into buckets at a glance. Mm-hmm. We should spend more time with each piece of art that we encounter to decide what it truly is. Right. So on your recent history of games with gas-powered games, what was gas-powered's official first game? Was that Dungeon Siege 1? Yes. So would those all have been classified as the same kind of 
triple a title have you always been a a triple a studio i mean that i would you know it's tough i'd like to play a little more humble but the truth is we certainly came out of cave dog with total annihilation and i don't know that total annihilation was a triple a game i think it was probably more in that same bucket as sins of the solar empire it didn't have the production money but it had a lot of soul behind it and it had a lot of creativity and a lot of stuff that was pushing the boundaries and trying to be you know really innovative so it did I have think a fantastic been... soundtrack Oh, 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 yeah. The, the soundtrack was quadruple. You can't diss the production value of the soundtrack of Touye. <laughs> to be really clear, that was an orchestral soundtrack that rivaled a motion picture out of Hollywood for a $100 million movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy composed that music. We went to a live. We did the Northwest Symphonia, which is the same as the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. But I believe these are some of the most talented musicians in the United States who sat and performed that with, it was just, you know, eye-watering perfection and talent. And so that was way outclassing the game, but it also brought the game up to a level that was awe-inspiring. Absolutely. And so going from that to Dungeon Siege, were you thinking, you know, we have to raise the bar even higher? Were you thinking, oh, well, we we can never accomplish that again? Like, how did the transition between Cave Dog to Gas Powered go? Well, we of course, we talked to Jeremy right away, and Jeremy agreed to compose the music. In fact, he started his studio. He had not actually left. He was literally an on-staff composer at Cave Dog, and he left. And we uh, uh, worked with him to get his studio started, which was fantastic. But by his own admission, you know, he was like, I realize that we're all getting started here. You're starting your company, and I'm starting my company, and we don't have a lot of extra money. Let's see what we can do with synthetic sound. I mean, we're rabbit holing on that, but we didn't do a live orchestra. And in hindsight, we probably should have. But the soundtrack was still incredible because Jeremy is not just a composer and not just a businessman and an entrepreneur. He's a technologist. And when you're a technologist, you understand more deeply the advancement in tools and tech with regards to composing and recording music, especially the Mm -hmm. kind that he writes orchestral music. So he went deep and invested tremendous amounts of money in really sophisticated computer equipment to produce the kind of sound that he ended up providing on Dungeon Siege. So getting back to the games then, Dungeon Siege and Dungeon Siege 2 were Gas Powered Games' first games, right? Yes, Gaspard Games, we produced Dungeon Siege 1, and then during the production of Dungeon Siege 2, we started work on Supreme Commander, and then ended up moving publishers on Supreme Commander, and finishing the game at THQ. Those guys were great, we ended up shipping that, and then went on to some other games since then, but we were already dipping our toe into a market change, like a changing world of gaming, where consoles... We're really starting to suck all the air out of the room. I mean, put differently and put more directly, consoles really started sucking the money out Mm -hmm, of PC gaming. mm -hmm. Where people would say, you know, PC gaming is dead. And it wasn't that PC gaming was dead so much as all the money sort of left town to develop console games. Because console games were more lucrative for the publishers. So, of course, they're going to put their money down on the square that pays them the higher returns. So we struggled as a company. We loved PC gaming, and we didn't see PC gaming. It wasn't like we loved computer gaming, and computer gaming was just, well, if it's here, it's on PC, or it's on console, or it's 
on some other device. To us, PC gaming is about the PC. And that's where our art, it's like if you're a painter and you don't care if it's on canvas or whether it's watercolor or if it's on Photoshop. No, no, no. We were very specific in our art to PC gaming. And to this day, I promise you that I am a PC game designer and developer, and that's where I'll stay. Now, I think it's interesting that you're talking about the the publishers really going for consoles because gas-powered games has actually worked with a lot of different publishers over the years. Dungeon Siege 1 and 2 were both Microsoft Game Studios. Supreme Commander 1 was, I think you just said THQ, and then I think Supreme Commander 2 was Square Enix, Eidos. And then, of course, Demigod was with Stardock, right? So that's like a ton of different people that you've worked with with all your different games. Oh, yeah, we worked with a spot, well... Um, we worked with Take Two. We've worked with a bunch of publishers that I can't talk about because they had <laughs> titles with us that were canceled during development. And so because of the nature of the way these agreements are written, we can't even tell you about stuff that right. was canceled. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, it's just the way the business works, you know, but it's unfortunate because when people see us not producing anything, they wonder what we're doing. And, of course, we're working on something that got canceled, which is just heartbreaking. Mm. So I guess this kind of brings us back around to the current Wildman Kickstarter situation. And I kind of wanted to kickstart that conversation by saying, based on your experiences with Kickstarter so far, is it easier or harder to pitch a game to the crowdfunding scene than it is to pitch a game to one of these myriad of publishers you've worked with over the years? Well, I couldn't have answered that question, of course, until I had at least tried to do a Kickstarter. And now that I'm over two weeks in, I can say with all honesty, well, frankly, with data, saying it with empirical data, that it is hard either way. If you go to a publisher, you can try to sell the idea to a small group. So you can get in a room and you can look at the people that you're trying to sell your idea to. Now, it still has to go through an enormous amount of process legal, etc. But you at least really look at the people that you're trying to sell the idea to. When you go with crowdfunding, you're really dealing with this sort of like impossible for any one person to kind of model all of the opinions of the people on the internet. So you kind of can't speak to one person. You kind of just have to speak to the idea and then the people shall, you know, build it and they will come kind of thing. It's much more difficult to do it by throwing a dart at the dartboard. But in time, I think the predictability of the crowdfunding model starts to get more reliable. In other words, you start to learn what the collective consciousness likes and doesn't like. But you can't guess. So let me put it a little differently. After what we've gone through on the Kickstarter, if I were to do another Kickstarter right after this one, I would have a much, much higher likelihood of success. With it, because obviously you, we've run into some we've run into some slow slowdown because we've not communicated the vision of the game properly to people. Now we've we've been working on that steadily to improve it. Better videos, lots of updates, questions and answers, and that's working. But wouldn't it have been better to start there? And exactly. How would you know? How would you know to even start? How would you know where to start? How would you know where to improve? I mean, it's funny that everything else we do in life is an iterative learning process right? You remember the first time you picked up a paintbrush and you went to paint a bedroom wall or, or paint a fence. I mean, you did a terrible job, right? But by the end of the day, you'd learn so much about how to paint. When you started the next day, you were like, 
I'm going to improve. And guess what? Your painting improved, right? This is the way every single thing works for human beings. Very few people pick something up and do it perfectly the first time. Now, there are people who do it. They're gifted people, and they're rare, and that's a wonderful thing. But for the rest of us, the other 99.9%, we have to iterate on things. Well, Kickstarter is no different. Now, with a publisher, it's very, very hard to iterate because once you learn one publisher and one group of people, you have to start all over again with another publisher and another group of people, mm -hmm. and then another publisher and another group of people. And you might even get into a publisher and be having a wonderful relationship, and then those people decide to leave and move on, and a new group of people come in, and now you've got to like relearn these idiosyncrasies of a specific group of people. But with the internet population, it's really hard to understand it at first, but then over time, there's a consistency to it. Like I could post up something, and I would know that eight out of ten people are going to love it, and two people are going to hate it and tell me to go die. Like that's <laughs> They're rather aggressive about their, their anger and frustration on the internet. Yeah. Hopefully more we, so we than call, publishers are in their meetings. We, we call them trolls, you know, and you don't ever usually get a publisher in a meeting, right? Imagine if you had a publisher with ten people around a boardroom table, and you pitched an idea, and the one guy at the end said, I think you should die. <laughs> Like, like, actually, other than being really, really funny, you know, you'd be shocked, right? But the internet has those people in it, and that's how they get attention. We call them trolls, and there's kind of a rule of thumb. Don't feed the troll. If you feed the troll, if you tell the troll, hey, that's really mean. Why are you telling me to die? Then the troll will come back twice as strong. It's like a Chinese finger puzzle of troll <laughs> feeding, right? And, and you know how this works because I know you have a site where you get feedback and everyone who's got a site that gets feedback is just continuously horrified by the trolls. But you get used to the trolls. You actually start to embrace the trolls. It's almost like if you didn't have trolls, you'd be like, where are the trolls? <laughs> like, what, what's, don't I rate? Don't I get trolls? Are, are you troll worthy? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it just makes me laugh and smile when I think about these people. I I honestly think there should be like a reality TV show that goes and finds trolls and interviews them. And in says, real like, life, sort of an ambush in interview. real life. Carl Smith, you're a troll. You can see they're holding the microphone up, right? Carl Smith, tell us why you're a troll. Microphone over to Carl. Carl's like, well, you know, I hate everything in the world and everyone <laughs> should die. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hilarious. Anyway. Maybe, maybe that'll be your next Kickstarter project after this one. Make a, a TV studio oh, yeah, instead yeah. of video games. That's what's wonderful about the internet right now. There's so much potential to do so many new and exciting things. One of the questions I kind of had, uh, something that I wanted to get your opinion on, is it feels to me that we've kind of reached this point where Kickstarter is sort of, oh, this is an exciting new thing. We'll get games that we've never gotten before made. has a little bit worn out, and people are kind of gotten to the point where we've backed a few projects, and we're sort of thinking, well... We've backed some projects, and how many more of these are we going to back before we actually start playing these games? Because most of the projects that have been backed on Kickstarter, I mean, it's still fairly recent. They haven't been made into games yet. I wonder, do you think that the honeymoon period of Kickstarter has worn off and people are like, well, we're not really going to be backing stuff until we actually start getting some games? Yeah, you're identifying a very serious problem, and that is that is there enough money to prime the pipe the content pipeline and then start seeing things come out the other end. So people will start putting their money back into it again and keeping the cycle repeating. In other words, if games take one or two years and there's a new game on Kickstarter every month, imagine somebody funding 
10 games, 20 games before they saw their first game. I mean, this is yeah, exactly. this is asking way too much of someone. It's asking too much of me as a consumer, let alone me as a game developer. So I think that Wildman could be definitely suffering from the of what people are calling. There's already a name for it. It's called Kickstarter Fatigue. And I'm sorry to, that I showed up at the buffet and all the good stuff's been, you know, cleaned out. And I'm just looking at the, you know, the iceberg lettuce. <laughs> there's a, there's an olive or two. And I'm like, hey, what happened here, right? But the truth is, in my case, I don't think that's true. I think it was because we needed to talk more strongly of describing the core game, but add to it a little Kickstarter <laughs> fatigue. Add to it the fact that our game is highly original. It's it's even though there's some components of it that are very well established, we are talking about an original game. We are not talking about Wild Man Two here. We're not talking about a nostalgic retro thing where this is the game you you know you played when you were a kid. This is a brand new fresh game, and that multiplies the complexity of trying to raise money in a crowdfunder model. However, in the traditional publisher model. That actually works in your favor because publishers appreciate and they know the value of something new. Because when you put out something that's new, you have a chance of grabbing a much, much higher percentage of the market. If you look at the games that are sensations today, Minecraft, unlike anything you saw before, League of Legends, a commercialized version of Dota, um, but still fresh for all intents and purposes, especially the free-to-play model. World of Tanks, completely exciting and new and not a sequel. And the list goes on. Original IP has this incredible potential. Now, when you do something derivative, a sequel, you're locking in. It's like an investment portfolio where your returns are going to be very well known. You will make money. You probably won't blow away the previous numbers. Like, mm-hmm. as well as Grand Theft Auto sold, they're not going to blow away the previous three games. At best, they're going to do the same, or maybe 5% better or 10% worse. Actually, there's more of a risk that they'll screw up. At same time here, although I agree with you about original games, the one thing I wanted to catch on to Wildman was that the theme of the game, the art direction, was this sort of caveman-esque prehistoric game and i'm sort of wondering well one of the things i saw was you know gameplay aside the just the theme of the art was like oh yeah you know cavemen are boring because in a sense you don't see very many caveman games you know you have a lot of sort of the medieval high fantasy games you have a lot of the world war ii modern warfare games and you have a lot of the sci-fi stuff but there's not that much caveman stuff do you think wild man might have hit kickstarter with a lot more um, punch if it came in with the exact same game, but the art direction instead of being Wild Man Caveman was, I don't know, you know, the adventures of Krogoth and the core homeworlds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're hitting on the exact thing, thematically tying stuff in. I mean, that's why people love a license from a book or a movie, right? Because there's an instant familiarity, although they just generally don't do that well. You do hope, right? You do think. That's why the Angry Birds swag is everywhere. T-shirts, baseball caps, whatever, all with the Angry Birds on them. It's because this theme... It works for people to be familiar with something. Mm-hmm. Is it cool, really, to walk around with a T-shirt with an Angry Bird on it? I mean, was that really cool? When you talk about cool factor, I think that if a Hollywood movie came out with a caveman in prehistoric times, and he went around cracking skulls and leading an army to victory, and it was with you know Brad Pitt, we'd have T-shirts on it with Brad Pitt on it or whatever, right? Like we'd have a we'd have a the caveman guy, a lunchbox or underwear. 
You see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, because it just feels like, like, how do you ever make cavemen as cool as knights in armor and mages and soldiers and, and robots? I mean, cavemen just seem like this inherently boring, uncool thing. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But that is where the two camps separate. You're looking at it right now. A creative person breathes life into something that has no life. If it already has life, if it's already interesting, if it's already a pop culture phenomenon, well, the creative person is like throwing their body on like a dog pile, just throwing themselves into it and adding very, very little value. If I told you that I was going to make a futuristic sci-fi first-person shooter game that looked like Halo, but completely different, you would think (laughs) I was creatively bankrupt, wouldn't you? Or you're just taking shortcuts in describing your game. I don't know. Well, or or you'd say that I was a smart businessman. You yeah, could, that's you true. You could also compliment me, right? You could, so, you could reach into your pocket so you, and have a I pile guess, of money. I guess with the, the Wildman Project, then, you do have this sense that the caveman theme can become a cool thing. Oh, absolutely. That's my job, right? My job is to take something that has not been well-traveled, take something that people aren't that familiar with, breathe life into it, and then I get first crack at it, right? Like, I'm the guy Mm -hmm. who then brought cavemen back, and what I do is I make that exciting and interesting again, and I carve out a space. So that's kind of like fashion, right? Like, I mean, if you're a fashion designer, you don't design the stuff that's already popular. You design some crazy and arguably ugly damn thing that people look at and go, blah, and then you make it cool, and now your stuff sells like hotcakes because you lead the market. That's the whole creative trick. It's the thing that you've got to be able to do. So instead of making a Halo clone, as it were, you want to make a game that other people will be making Wild Men clones of. Right. If you don't care about artistic integrity, if you are just doing it to make money, if you're just running a business, well, then you do want to make the clone because they are not doing it for the artistic creative endeavor. They are doing it to make money. And then guess what? That's what they make. They make money. But I will say this. I do not do what I do just purely to make money. I've never been a guy who just chases the dollars. I actually do stuff because it rewards me creatively. And that Mm -hmm. is probably a bad thing in the world today when you have to pay a mortgage and feed your children and possibly put money away for college. You can't be that altruistic. So you kind of have to do it half and half. You have to have the 50-50 split kind of between the balance between the business mind and the creative mind. I tend to lean too heavily to the creative, but I have to grab myself by the collar and yard myself over and go, Chris, come on now. Don't abandon all your business sense here. You do have to pay your mortgage. So it's a conflict. It's not only a balance. It's a bit of a battle. Now, one of the uh, interesting things, this is sort of shooting off on a tangent. I was comparing the Wild Man Kickstarter to a significantly more successful Project Eternity Kickstarter. And when I just crunched the math, and I, it comes down to about 51 to $52 per person for both Kickstarter projects. So what I was interested in seeing that in both of these two game projects, the amount of money on average per person is about the same. In other words, all you really need with Wild Men is more people, not necessarily for each person to be giving more money. So how do you think going forward from here, you can reach more people and bring them on board with Wild Men? Well, we've been doing that exact thing. There's a name for it in the free-to-play space that I'll borrow. It's called the funnel. You want to put more people into the top of the funnel because you know only a small number kind of are going to come out the bottom, kind of like a wide opening at the top, narrow opening Mm -hmm, at the bottom. mm -hmm. 
Although a funnel, technically a funnel would put them all through the bottom eventually. But <laughs> for the sake of the process, sort of the business model, right? You really just need to keep throwing more people into the top. You need more reach. Okay, well, we have tons of reach. And the thing that's going to happen here today is there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to hear this interview and they're going to go, you know what? I'm going to go check out Wild Man on Kickstarter. I'm going to listen to that crazy guy and I'm going to go check it out. And they're going to go check it out and they're going to decide that they love it or not. And the thing is, is that if the idea does not grab them, then they are not going to pledge. So at the highest level, what Kickstarter is accomplishing is the very, very important job of vetting an idea creatively. At the, at the elevator pitch level, or at least the brief level. And this is probably an okay process. Like, I can't criticize it. If I told you about a car that's going to have six wheels, be all terrain, have this much cargo space, have an engine that's this many horsepower, it's going to cost $120,000. I mean, before anybody goes and builds that car, it would be really good to know if people thought it was a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, yeah. if you don't get a lot of people who love it, then maybe it's not a good idea. Like you have to kind of reach deep inside yourself. Now, in my case, I think it's because I've done a poor job at explaining how we're going to take this really tried and true and very, very fun game called Action mm -hmm. RPG, a game that just has returned many hours of fun. But I'm going to take that hero character and I'm going to allow you to lead an army and fight like Braveheart, King Leonidas, you know, lead this battle and then when you win on this field of battle, you get technology that will be part of your character in a sense because you'll carry this technology with the character and then go off and explore and do more overland adventure and do more action RPG. And I thought this, at its simplest explanation, was a really fresh and exciting idea worth pursuing. So that's where I am. That's how I feel. And I want to keep going on it and see how far we can go. Well, I'd love to keep on asking questions, but uh, thanks very much for joining us today. And hopefully we'll catch up with you and hear what's going to happen with Wild Men after the Kickstarter campaign ends. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. I hope to hear from you again. Sounds good.